Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Economist Corner, a CETA podcast where leading economists break down the latest news and policy updates. I'm Jared Ball, Chief Economist of CETA, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. Australia is facing a shortage of at least 110,000 direct aged care workers within the next decade, unless urgent action is taken to boost the workforce. That's just one of the findings of our latest report, which also found that that shortage could balloon to more than 400,000 workers by 2050, unless we take dramatic action now. Australia has failed to prepare for this challenge, but there are steps that we can take to improve the system now. To discuss CEDA's findings and potential solutions, I'm joined by Aged and Community Services Australia CEO, Patricia Sparrow. Uh, I'm also joined by the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation Federal Assistant Secretary, Laurie-Anne Sharp, and of course, the author of our CEDA report, Senior Economist, Cassandra Windsor. But first, as always, I'm joined by our Chief Executive, Melinda Salento, to discuss some of the issues we're thinking about at CEDA this week. Hi, Melinda. Hey, Jared. How are you? I'm. Uh, I'm not too bad. Uh, you know, not not getting too optimistic or pessimistic based on uh, latest Melbourne case numbers. But of course, everything we seem to talk about in the uh, public debate at the moment seems to be around vaccines and lockdowns. And just looking at some of the latest numbers. You know, we've got over 14 million uh, doses of the vaccine have now been administered. Um, around one in five adults now fully vaccinated, it looks like. And lots of suggestions, obviously, about how we can accelerate the rollout and get to this magic 70 or 80% uh, target sooner, including perhaps a very Pagovian suggestion from the opposition leader around cash for jabs, lotteries, you name it, and perhaps uh, today a bit more focus around what happens in workplaces. Um, what do you think about this, the kind of debate that's happening around vaccination in workplaces, and particularly if we relate it to the sector that we're talking about today in aged care and the fact that it, it really is ahead of the queue in terms of requiring workers to be vaccinated by a certain date? Um, what, what are some of the issues that you see playing out in this debate, Melinda? Yeah, Jared, I think it's a it's a really interesting case study, if I can put it that way. And, you know, I think we've talked about this before, but, you know, obviously the most vulnerable citizens in our community are, are still um, older citizens. I know the Delta variant is sort of um, making itself felt um, in the younger population a little bit more. And we've seen uh, recently some um, very young people succumb uh, to the Delta variant. But, you know, first and foremost, this does remain a real threat to our, our older Australians. And so I think it makes sense that we roll it out um, in the aged care homes, um, both in terms of, um, you know, residents of those homes, but also the people who are caring for them. I think one of the things that I would really like to see a lot more of, though, is actually some transparency around how that rollout is progressing. Um, I know aged care providers have to collect the information around the proportion of their employees who are fully vaccinated um, or, or have actually had their first jab. And I actually don't understand why we don't see a bit more transparency around that information. It's a, it's an admin burden for those um, providers to be doing it. So why not make the most of it? I think it would you know provide some insights into how getting this done in the workplace um, actually works on the ground. And 
you know, I think as as the report that you're speaking to later on in the podcast, our, you know, our, our aged care workforce report will show there's a fair bit of turnover in, in that sector as well. And so it's not a one and done issue. Uh, you know, we really have to see how it, it continues to roll out. And, you know, I, I'd like to see a, a lot more conversation about that um, and lessons for other employers um, who are, might be, um, you know, jumping on the mandating, um, uh, you know, bandwagon, perhaps a wrong way to put it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and to the data transparency point, I mean, it's a point that's picked up in the report more broadly around the fact that we just have so little information on our aged care workforce. And the information that we do have in the form of a survey is updated every five years, which given the challenges that we've outlined uh, is is just not good enough. We need, we need greater transparency and more frequent transparency on these issues if we're going to solve them. Yeah, and I think, you know, the other thing that we're sort of doing at the moment a bit, Jarrah, too, is talking about this sort of very aggregate numbers, even the 70% of the community vaccinated, 80%, um, beneath those numbers are actually, you know, different numbers across different age cohorts. And so getting the full population to 80% vaccination um, actually requires um, a much higher proportion of older workers, for instance, to be fully vaccinated. And I think it's, you know, it, there's a challenge in getting those numbers above 80%, 80-90%. And, and really, I think um, I get the aggregate targets, but I just think we need some more nuanced conversations around vaccines and and a lot of other stuff, quite frankly. Uh, yes, doesn't seem to be uh, a time for nuance necessarily in the in the public conversation at the moment. You're absolutely right. Um, so we should we should talk a little bit about this report. I mean, obviously, um, Cassandra. And our other guests will talk about this in in much greater depth. But um, I must say, to begin with, Melinda, you know, it, it's always interesting when we do these topics that I think some people perhaps put in the in the kind of um, you know social more in the social basket than the than the economic basket. Um, I think this one has been a really interesting report, just in terms of how critically important the workforce is. Uh, in caring professions, but obviously in aged care specifically, uh, and how we're going to meet challenges with kind of some of the vulnerabilities and the ageing that we have in our population. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Jared. Um, there's there's a lot of different dimensions to um, to this report in particular, but also to human services more broadly, right? So um, if you look at uh, our economic future, we know that um, services like aged care are going to, um, you know, make up a bigger part of our economy in the years ahead. So how we perform in delivering those services actually has a really significant economic imperative as well. You know, you know like uh, how much it's going to cost to provide these services, the quality of these services, all of that is is a really important economic issue. Um, I can draw another sort of um, line to economics, if you like, in that we're going to have to keep workforce participation rates uh, up um, quite high. And we saw that from the intergenerational report. And we've already seen lots of conversations around childcare, but we also know that there's a growing number of uh, people who are sort of um, kind of being squeezed from both ends, if you like, and, and um, caring responsibilities for young children, but also for older parents. And so the ability to sort of juggle all these things has both economic and social dimensions to it. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. And, and you know, the Aged Care Royal Commission was very clear that there's this inextricable link between the quality 
uh, of the workforce and the capacity to provide the quality of service and care that people expect. And I think that has some really major economic and social consequences in terms of how we do that. Um, the health and well-being of our uh, aged Australians and the workers in the sector, obviously, but also, you know, how we choose to build this caring workforce, uh, which is going to be really important, uh, a really fast growing area of um, growth in the labour force. Uh, and also, obviously, a sector that that is going to have an increasingly important economic contribution as well. Uh, and I guess one of the things that, you know, we're probably most worried about in terms of if we don't get this right is some of the kind of um, economic and fiscal flow on into other sectors. So, for example, health uh, and the fact that we may have more and more uh, aged Australians in hospitals uh, and and receiving acute uh, care for different conditions because that that aged care sector is not working uh, as we would like. So, um, some really important issues there. One issue that that has come up in some of the discussions that we've been having uh, before the release, Melinda, and I know that you're sort of quite quite passionate in this area, is around technology um, and the fact that certainly some of the kind of you know imagery we see on this is is this idea that perhaps in the future people will be cared for by robots. Um, but the reality is much different, isn't it, around some of the opportunities that there are for technology to play a greater role and, and you know, not just to be, um, you know, taking away from the human element, but actually to be freeing up people to, to have that human element. I think it's technology, like in every other sector, technology has got a role to play here. And I think there's two big buckets of, if you like, that we can think about. One is um, how technology can assist in providing care, for instance, in aged care homes um, and making the jobs of the workforce um, easier uh, and allowing them more time and able and making them able to provide better care. And I think the other bucket too to think about is how technology might be able to assist in uh, enabling people to live at home longer um, uh, safely. So I think they're sort of two big buckets of things that we can think about. If I think about um, providing care in aged care homes, you know, we've already seen um, technology helping out there and even small scale things like um, having sensors um, in beds so that when uh, people are out of their bed, you know when they're out um, and you can kind of get a sense of whether they're okay without even being in the room with them. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that sits around that that's about quality of care. Um, and, of course, there's um, technological advances that help with things like rostering, um, which means that you can um, make – that's more a sort of home care thing, but you can make um, – uh, improvements there. So so I think there's a lot in this. I, I don't personally at this stage see technology as, as necessarily delivering a massive productivity advance, but I do think it, it can improve the quality of, of care. Um, and as I said, you know, make the, the jobs for carers themselves perhaps um, a little bit easier. I think one final thing just to reflect on there though, Jared, is when you look at the commercial reality of the sector, the sorts of changes that we're talking about on the technology front and whether it's better use of digital technologies or whatever, that takes time and money to invest in those things um, and time and money to train up workforces. Um, and I think there's a big chunk of the sector that probably um, isn't well placed to be making those investments. So I think a, a big policy question down the track there as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. And perhaps as as Patricia Sparrow describes it in uh, the discussion, uh, high tech and high touch uh, is is going to be really important as well. Um, I guess the the other aspect of of this report that I think is is quite interesting is just the role of migration. Uh, and the fact that you cannot uh, neglect that in this conversation—it's uh, a you know more than thirty percent of the workforce currently uh, is is migrants, um, but that has happened in a sense, um, sort of by circumstance, by the fact that we have had migrants who've come to this country uh, and have ended up working in aged care, but didn't necessarily come to Australia to work specifically in aged care. So another recommendation of the report picks up on this opportunity for Australia to really directly uh, look to bring uh, migrants into Australia to work in the aged care sector on the skilled uh, migration program, uh, rather than necessarily being, uh, you know, people who've come to uh, Australia on a permanent visa or, or come as international students and end up working in the sector. So I think that's that's going to be a really important uh, area going forward, uh, certainly once once borders reopen. Yeah, I'm going to be very interested in watching how that um, recommendation plays out, Jared. I think it's absolutely the right one. Um, sitting in that recommendation, of course, is the use of the language skilled. Um, and I'm all for a greater focus on the fact that these are skilled jobs. They do require a high level of, uh, of skill and um, a whole bunch of experience. And so I think that's a really good call out. I think just highlighting the extent to which we're already relying on on migrants to to be in the sector is is really critical so um, I think it's a really important recommendation obviously I think it's the right one uh, but I do think it's going to be interesting to see what what the reaction to that is well I think you're right and and just to the skill point I mean obviously uh, we have a workforce that's dealing with a set of complex challenges and and growing complex challenges around dementia and, and other conditions that we're seeing. Uh, so it is really important not to forget that skilled element. But uh, we must move on and uh, hear from our panel. But thanks for thanks for the chat, Melinda. Yeah, pleasure. Uh, good luck with the report. Well, Cass, we've just had a Royal Commission into Aged Care and it came up with an enormous list of recommendations. So given that, why was it important for you to do this research and what were the, the key findings of your report? Aged care is a really important sector and I think all of us want to know that ourselves and our family members will be taken care of when we need it. It's also a really large and growing part of the economy and will make a substantial contribution to our longer term economic development. The Royal Commission raised awareness of a lot of the issues in the industry and has made some really good recommendations. We think that key to be, being able to implement the recommendations of the Royal Commission and to provide the high quality of care that Australians expect is to make sure that we have the right amount of staff to deliver services and that those staff are well educated and trained. The workforce in the aged care sector is currently growing really slowly and our report finds that if we continue to grow at the current pace, we're going to be short around 110,000 workers by 2030 and nearly 400,000 by 2050. So it's a really big challenge and there's a lot that needs to be done to meet it. There's not an easy solution here and all available levers need to be pulled in order to meet the challenge. All right, thanks for that Cass. And Patricia, I can see you're here. I know that you've done this once before already, so I'm just gonna keep rolling. 
Um, but but I'll be coming for a question to you after um, Laurie-Anne. But Laurie-Anne, perhaps if I can I can start with you. We were talking before we came on around some of the, the challenges that everyone's facing uh, due to COVID-19, but obviously it's been a, a busy period and, and enormous pressure on, on the aged care workforce in the context of the Royal Commission, but also COVID-19. Just how are conditions for workers at the moment and, and how are they feeling in your sort of um, observation and conversations that you're having? Thanks, Jared. That is a really critical question and I just wish it got asked a little bit more often. I think the perspective from the worker um, isn't something that we're focused on enough in the narrative. I think that, you know, we if we just think about being in the shoes of a personal care worker or a nurse at this time, they've got huge stress around COVID, they're chronically understaffed, they're underpaid, they're undervalued. You can see from a number of policy decisions around the vaccination rollout that they have, haven't been respected in that regard. They were meant to be fully vaccinated by April. We're now in the middle of August and that target has not been met. They're also faced with increased workloads. We know that 50% of elderly residents are going into nursing homes with dementia now. They've got comorbidities, really complex health needs. And we know that it's not easy work. You know, it's really physical. It's emotionally demanding. Carers are getting paid between $22 and $23 an hour for this. Um, you know, I also know from my own experience as working as a registered nurse in the early 2000s in nursing homes when staffing was slightly better. It was really difficult then. It's been a very slippery slope downhill. And, and we know that the increasing pressures that COVID's brought that it's just another um, another stress on our workforce. There, you know, there's a lot, there's lots of fear. There's fear of packing the virus, of unwillingly spreading the virus. Um, there's been shortages in staffing and PPE, and there's been a lot of other stresses. We know that 40% of the workforce are migrants, predominantly women. They've all off often got caring responsibilities as well. So all the challenges that everyone else has had to deal with in COVID and with the lockdowns they've had to deal with as well. Patricia, if I can come to you, what are the main challenges facing providers when it comes to finding and keeping workers at the moment? Yeah, thanks. Look, I think it's just actually finding workers. So, um, you know, we care for over a million people, whether that be in their own home or in a residential setting, um, and we need to triple our workforce by 2050. So we need uh, many more staff. Um, the staff that we have, over 360,000 staff, do an amazing job really um, under pressure, as, as Laurie was just outlining. Um, the, the challenges we have are about people knowing, I think, firstly, uh, about aged care and the sorts of things they can do. We focus largely on nurses and carers, or that's what people understand, and they are absolutely critical part of the workforce. But, of course, we also need hospitality and IT and a whole range of staff. So I think there's um, a, a job we need to do about promoting the sector and all of the possibilities that are in the sector. Um, one of the, the big issues that we do know is while people who work in this space aren't motivated by money alone, they do an extraordinary job because they care. We do know that working in aged care, if you are, uh, is, is a lower paid um, 
role than many other than many other areas. So if you look at hospitals or disability, uh, nurses and carers in those areas are often paid more. So um, that's that's also something that you know can be a deciding factor for people. Um, and I think that we need to do more work in terms of career um, career or. Um, pathways so you know that people can come in and um, specialize in particular areas you know be a carer but be a specialist dementia carer rather than assuming that people are going to want to come in and it's a very hierarchical you know moving up uh, and we need to give people um, training and support to do that so you know those are some of the challenges that we have in trying to attract the right number of people but also in terms of getting the people who are the right fit who want to work with older Australians. Well, thanks, Patricia. And uh, Laurie-Anne, just to come back to you, I mean, you won't be surprised to find that our report found that wages and working conditions uh, were amongst the biggest hurdles to getting more people working in the in the sector and keeping them. Um, but at the same time, we do see in some of the surveys that aged care workers clearly find their jobs uh, rewarding. What, what do workers tell you about the challenges that they find in terms of these conditions, but also on the other hand, the fact that they do find aspects of their jobs um, really satisfying? And, and how do they think about what's necessary to improve uh, their working conditions? Absolutely. There's a few things there, Jared. I'll just start by saying and agreeing with you that, yes, many carers and nurses do go in it because they really enjoy the work and they want to look after people. They want to care for people. They want to make their lives more comfortable. But the most important thing to them, even before wages, is safe staffing levels. So when they've got enough people on the floor to be able to give the good quality care that they want to and that they know the resident deserves, that's number one. We had a um, aged care members meeting, a national members meeting last week online via Zoom and we had five of the big states represented there. And I can't tell you some of the stories coming out, all like, members were in tears because they just don't have the time or the resources in staff to be able to attend to the care that they want to and they're forced to make these really difficult decisions and triage about who they go to next and that's just excruciating they go home at the end of their shift exhausted tired and burnt out yet they brush off they get up and they go back again the next day all for very low wages most workers in this sector will tell you that the number one problem to fix is the understaffing the ANMF have made an application to the Fair Work Commission and we're seeking a 25% increase to wages under the Nurses Award for nursing assistants and enrolled nurses and RNs. And we're also made a similar application to the Aged Care Award seeking the same for personal care workers. This will go some way in recognising and valuing the work they do, but it must be, it must be coupled with providing adequate staff. I mean, we all know, we all know from our own experience, when you've got a good team and you've got enough staff to do the job, you can do it well. At the moment, the chronic understaffing and the pressure that these workers face, coupled with the, them being undervalued and disrespected by different levels of, um, of our government is, is, is very difficult for them to bear. And I think obviously the you know, the findings of the Royal Commission in terms of the one and st one and two star providers uh, in terms of staffing adequacy went went to that point. 
Um, Cass, I want to bring you back in. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about some of the, the issues that the sector's facing and, and you've made some recommendations, in fact, 18, uh, and I have, I have read them. Um, can you give us a bit of a flavour around the, the recommendations um, that we've made in this report? Sure. I won't go through all 18 or um, that will be a very long list, um, but we have got a number of recommendations to increase the size of the workforce um, and also upskill existing workers and future workers coming in. So it's not just about the quantity of workers, it's also about the quality. We do think that wages need to be increased and working conditions improved. This is really the key plank that will be the basis to both retaining existing workers and attracting new ones into the sector. We also want to see more staff getting qualifications. So we argue for at least a certificate three for personal care workers and for more ongoing training and professional development leading to those career pathways and career progression. Migration is also a really important um, uh, policy lever here. So on migration, we think that once borders reopen, uh, we need to at least maintain the previous levels of migration. And most migrants have um, in the past come through um, to work in the sector through fairly indirect means. So maybe they've come on a working holiday visa or a student visa and just ended up working in aged care. But we actually think that we need to be directly recruiting these workers. So that might be through adding them to a skilled migration list or introducing a new visa class for care workers, such as an essential skills visa. Uh, we think by doing this, this will ensure we get high quality, motivated workers who really want to be in the sector. We also have some recommendations around increased investment in technology and innovation, um, including digital literacy training for staff, which will be really important for implementing any, any um, tech improvements. Uh, and finally, the industry should be sharing knowledge around best practice throughout the industry and also promoting some of those positive stories that we hear about um, the high levels of job satisfaction and, and the different sort of roles that there are in aged care in order to attract new workers to the industry. All right. Um, Patricia Cass has just mentioned some of the recommendations around technology and innovation. And unfortunately, I think people, when they think about technology in this sector, sometimes um, they jump to that, that vision of, of robots looking after uh, aged Australians, um, but clearly there's a lot of other technology that providers are using and, and can use um, to help the workforce and actually enhance, I guess, the human touch uh, of care here. What, what kinds of technology are you seeing of being of assistance here? Jared, just before I go to the technology piece, can I just make a point about uh, the staffing and the pay, which I think, you know, I, I need to highlight, which is that we also support, we've been saying for some time that we need more staff and that they need to be better paid. Um, for providers, the majority of their revenue actually comes from government. So uh, the Royal Commission uh, did some good things in terms of reform and some investment, but a lot of that investment was tied to particular outcomes. What's really important for us as, as service providers, and I represent for-profit providers, is that the government's going to need to support that without their increased investment, providers won't be able to pay increased wages if that's the result of the fair work value case. So it's really important that people understand um, that that's, that's an issue for us as providers uh, to be able to pay 
um, to be able to pay staff better and to have more staff are going to need that support. And the Royal Commission does some of that, but it left the wages piece completely uh, undone. And that's going to be really critical going forward. Um, on technology, what I can say is that exactly what you're saying, I think, you know, the terminology that I like to use is that we need aged care to be high tech and high touch. Um, there are a range of different forms of technology that providers can use now. I think we see, you know, in home care, we see monitoring. Uh, in residential care, we see movement monitoring. All of those things are really, really important. Um, but we have to keep a focus on, it's a very intimate service, the delivery of aged care, and we need to make sure that that human touch is there the whole way through while supplementing it with using technology on tasks that can be easily uh, automated or, or, or technic technically done, uh, but keeping the personal is really critical. I think we need to look at technology overall in, in the sector. It's, it's um, There are some things that some providers are doing that we would want to see across the board. So I think we need to look at how we can adapt technology right through the system, but not losing that personal touch on what is a really you know, intimate and personal service that we provide. Well, thanks, Patricia, and thanks for adding in uh, those those points around staffing levels and wages. Really important, as you say. Laurie Ann, training training is also obviously a key issue as well, and and we make recommendations in the report on that. Um, there's work underway in terms of the certificate three. What what do you think has to happen on on that particular um, qualification, but also more broadly to improve uh, training in the sector and, and recognising the qualifications of workers? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jared. I think absolutely there needs to be um, a minimum level of training at Cert 3. But the other, the other thing that's happening is as some members of the workforce are burning out and new people are coming in, um, they might do a six-week course but then there's not adequate um, skill mix within a nursing home to be able to provide that ongoing mentoring that's happening. So, um, that, and that's really critical, as we've already said, you know, it is a, it's a, it's a care sector. Um, it's very important that when you're dealing with that human to human contact all the time and the medical conditions that, that come with that as the age are frail, many are frail, um, you, you, it's really critical that they have that, that mentoring and that just isn't there at the moment because we don't have this, the right skill mix in a, in a lot of the nursing homes. Um, I also, I just wanted to, if you don't mind, just go back to some of the technical innovation too, because I think that whilst um, that will be a critical step moving forward, there's, there are some things that, that nursing homes are introducing that are not, that are trying to replace staff. And we see this as a real barrier to good care. And one of those examples might be a sensor mat. And we've, we've known that in some facilities where there's a sensor mat at night, and then if someone is um, falling out of bed or gets out of bed, that that is then alerted to a staff member. Nothing will ever replace having workers and staff on the ground to monitor and assess residents because by the time those sort of things go off someone has already fallen and fractured a hip or suffered some huge health consequences so i think what, when we talk about innovation and technology it's really critical to think about what we're doing and, and what are the consequences of those um but you're just getting back to the training and career progression it's going to be really important jared for 
people going new to the sector to see that there is progression, to see that there is support and to see that um, there's mentoring um, and training available to them and certain career pathways, they might start off as a carer, then, you know, um, transverse to an enrolled nurse and then a registered nurse. But to get them in and to get them interested and for it to be a sustainable working life and um, a profession, it's really critical that they have the right skill mix and adequate staff in the very first place so that we can attract people there and retain people there. Thanks for that, Laurie-Anne. And of course, I come to my final question, which is always the unfair one around, uh, you know, especially when it comes to a complex topic like this of selecting your top priority to meet Australia's aged care workforce challenge. Um, Cass, let's start with you, then then Patricia and Laurie-Anne. Um, so I'm going to be a little bit sneaky and I'm going to give you two. Um, one, I think the wages issue um, really does need to be addressed. So it's going to be near impossible to attract and to retain the right amount of staff without those wage increases. So that does need to happen. Um, but apart from that, I'm going to go back to technology. So I'd really like to see some information of implementation of technology that's already out there and is being used in the sector, um, but see that implemented more broadly. So there's some really interesting and actually some fairly simple tech that could really improve conditions for workers. Um, so that might be software to better match them to the available shifts so they do get the hours they want. Um, it could be assistive lifting technology to reduce some of that physical burden. Um, so really focusing on, on those areas that um, actually free staff up to be able to do more of that face-to-face -face care rather than taking away from it. All right. Thanks, Cass. Uh, I won't penalise you for sneaking an extra one in there. Patricia. That's good. That means I can sneak an extra one in too because uh, I think it is multifaceted. So one of the things for me is that as a community, we don't really value our aged care workers as much. I'm, uh, we've seen some greater value being put on them through the pandemic. I think people have started to look at the roles that are really important in the community. So I think one of the things that we need is to see our society actually pay much more respect um, and support for uh, people who do an extraordinary job every day. But I would agree that we also have to make sure, and I think that would go along with that, if we valued what's predominantly a lower paid, predominantly female workforce, if we had more value uh, for, for them and for the work that they do, uh, some of the pay issues would also be addressed. So I think that's really important. But I think that, that those career pathways and support are critically important. So I've probably snuck three in, but I think they are interlinked uh, and really important that we address it across those fronts. Thanks, Patricia. Laurie-Anne, uh, based on current trends, you'll have four priorities, but um, let, let, me, let me come to you with yours. <laughs> uh, simple, Jared. One priority that must happen straight away is we need to legislate staffing ratios and skill mix and make sure there's registered nurses 24-7 across all nursing homes. Well, you, you've really ended it off well there, Laurie-Anne, and in the, in the spirit of the difficult question, uh, you have answered it. Well, thank you. That's Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation Federal Assistant Secretary Laurie-Anne Sharp, Aged and Community Services Australia CEO Patricia Sparrow, and our own Senior Economist Cassandra Windsor. And I'm Jared Ball, Chief Economist at CEDA. Thanks for listening.